All right. Um, our text this morning, if you brought your Bibles, I want to preach from Isaiah chapter 53, as someone has called it the gospel according to Isaiah. Uh, the prophet Isaiah's words in the 53rd chapter, which has been titled 52 and 53, the suffering servant. But uh, these, these wor- words are so valued that Martin Luther once said of Isaiah 53 that these words ought to be written on parchment of gold and lettered in diamonds. These words are so important. Well, these words were written more than 800 years before the birth of Christ. And Isaiah 53 actually contains one of the clearest views of the person and the work of Jesus Christ in Scripture. So with that being said, let's read together Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 12. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed." We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on Jesus our sins. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, He will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities, their sin. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many. He bore your sin. He bore my sin and the sin of the world. Well, today, as you're very well aware, today is Palm Sunday, which begins what we call Holy Week, or Passion Week, the Passion of Jesus Christ. 
Interesting that in the Bible, the word passion is only found one time, and that is Acts chapter 1, verse 3, which says in the King James Version of the Bible, to whom he shewed himself alive after his passion, after his passion, by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days, speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. After his passion. The word passion there literally means after his suffering. After his suffering. After his suffering in the garden and on the cross. You see, the passionate love of Christ caused Jesus to leave the glory of heaven, to take upon himself human form, and to live an obedient life of self-sacrifice required by the holiness of God. Let me just pause for a second. It's different doing everything left-handed. All right. I don't believe that we as the body of Christ can fully appreciate the magnitude of God's grace, God's love, God's mercy without appreciating the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, and the justice of God. To put it another way, we can't know the greatness of our salvation without knowing just what we've been saved from. The Bible is very clear of what we've been saved from. And we've been saved from, by God's grace, from God himself and his wrath. See, the gospel is good news. But do we also understand why the gospel is good news? The gospel is good news, but it also hints to us that there's some bad news before there's good news. And the bad news is that we, mankind, you and I, have sinned against a holy God. The Bible says there is no one righteous, no, not one. And because we have sinned against God, God's wrath is stored up for us, stored up for mankind. And so the bad news is that we as mankind have a sin problem. But the good news, according to the Bible, is that the passion of Christ was to take care of our sin problem. Aren't you glad for that? I like, I like this quote from C.S. Lewis. You've heard, you've heard it. I might use it again next week. But the Son of God, C.S. Lewis says, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. To put it another way, we have a debt we couldn't pay. Jesus paid a debt he didn't owe. In the book of Romans, Paul lays out that in the Lord Jesus Christ, a righteousness from God is revealed as to the answer to God's wrath against sin. And Paul emphasizes in this book, you know, the problem of sin and humanity's need of righteousness being universal. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And so all people are under sin. Thus, all people are under God's wrath. And really, no person can be justified before God apart from the gift of righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, over and over, God's word tells us that Jesus paid this incredible price for your sins and for my sins. I mean, Romans 4.25, for starters, he was delivered over to death for our sins. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 3, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Hebrews 7.27, he sacrificed 
for sins, for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Hebrews 9, 28. Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree, speaking of the cross. And then 1 John 2, 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, what it comes down to, and I love to keep things simple, what it comes down to is you and I are sinners in need of a Savior, period. And really what distinguishes Christianity from all other religions is the fact that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, to take our place on that cross and to pay the ultimate price for our sins. This quote from Leonard Ravenhill, he said, Christianity is not a comparative religion, it's superlative. In other words, Christianity is not in the same category as all other world religions. This quote from Steve Hill, the evangelist from Pensacola Revival, and I bought the t-shirt, actually I got t-shirt at home. Religion, he said, is hanging around the cross, Christianity is getting on the cross. A lot of people want to hang around the cross. But not many people want to die to their will and their selves. And so the difference is, is just that. Another person said the difference between Islam and Christianity, Islam is a religion and a false one at that, in which God requires you to send your son to die for him. Whereas Christianity is a faith in which God sent his son to die for you. Friends, there's a big difference there. Amen? Begs the question, Why? Why did Jesus do what he did? I mean, why did he, why did he suffer the way he suffered? And then really, what did Jesus actually go through to pay the price for my sin and for your sin? So what I want us to look at this morning is really the seriousness of our sin and what our sin, what my sin did to Jesus. I mean, what did Jesus actually endure during his final week, this week as we begin Passion Week or Holy Week. You know, followed by, uh, followed by following the Last Supper in the upper room, I mean, do we really understand, does the church, does the body of Christ really understand what Christ has done for us? We say, yeah, God's a loving Father, but God is also a wrathful judge. And in his wrath, God hates sin and must and will punish sin. On Wednesday nights, I've been teaching on the book of Revelation. And if the book of Revelation teaches me anything, as I've been going through this, is that God is loving, God is merciful, God wants all people to be saved, but God will also punish those who refuse to repent and get right with him. I've mentioned over and over again, even in the study on Revelation about his judgments, you know, the judgments of God and, and the seals that were on the scroll and the opening of the scroll and the, and the seven trumpets that we've gone through and we're going to get to the seven bowls, the seven vials. But they all really show God's extreme mercy for mankind. God giving mankind a chance to repent, even with the two witnesses that God's going to have come and preach for three and a half years. I mean, they're preaching. They're, they're calling people to repentance. If you disagree with them, fire comes out of their mouths and consumes you, you know? That's pretty serious stuff. But God's desire, God's heart is for mankind to acknowledge and to accept 
and to and to surrender and submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. So even in the tribulation, even in the great tribulation, God wants people to turn to him and to repent. Habakkuk prayed to God, Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. And in Psalm 5.5, the arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You hate all who do wrong. We've heard before God hates sin and loves the sinner. But the Bible tells us differently. 14 times in the first 50 Psalms, we see similar descriptions of God's hatred towards sinners, his wrath toward liars, and so on. Even in the third chapter of John, we find one of the most quoted verses in the Bible, for God so loved the world, John 3, 16. We also find one of the most neglected verses concerning God's wrath, and that would be John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. This also fits with Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who will suppress the truth by their wickedness. So why is it today that we prefer to only picture God as a father who might help us, all the while ignoring God as a judge who might damn us? One day, church, a loving Savior will be a severe judge. So not only do we need to understand this, but we need to understand that we as mankind were born with an evil, God-hating heart. And therefore, Ephesians 1.3, we are objects of God's wrath. Genesis 8.21 says that every inclination of man's heart is evil from childhood. And Jesus' own words in, in Luke 11.13 assume that we know that we are evil. For Jesus says, if you then, being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You might say, well, Pastor Brian, I've always loved God. Well, uh, sir, ma'am, no, you haven't. None of us have, all right? We may have loved a God of our own choosing, a God that we've made up, uh, but, but the God of the Bible, we were born with a heart that, were, that was against God and we are his enemies. Now, the Bible says that we've been created in the image of God yeah, but, but are we now trying to make God in our image? For example, God made two genders, male and female. He created them. And yet today, mankind has changed all of that and has said that you can be whatever gender you choose. We hear today about gender fluidity and gender dysphoria. I read online this past week that there are now 81 types of genders and gender identities that a person can choose from in the year 2023. How about two, male and female, God created them, period. I know it's not popular today. I know what teachers are teaching in our public schools. I know the direction our government wants to take us. I'm just going to say uh, I might not be uh, old school, but I am Bible school, and the Bible says there are two genders, period. And I guess I'll take that to my grave. But yet mankind today 
prefers a God of their own making and a God that consents to what they want. In essence, mankind has redefined or is trying to redefine, uh, redefine Christianity in the Bible. See, the Bible describes us as enemies of God and objects of God's wrath. I don't know if you've ever seen yourself that way. I know I have. And I'm also very, very, very thankful for the grace of God in my life, all right? But bottom line is, the Bible says that we are spiritually dead, we are, ter- we are eternally separated from God, and what's worse is you and I can do nothing about that to change our status before God. But the gospel confronts us with, you know, the, with the helplessness and the hopelessness of our sinful condition. That's why I honestly believe, church, that a limited view of God's wrath and justice leads to an underappreciation of God's grace. Or to put it in biblical language, the person who has been forgiven much loves much. That's why we need to diagnose our sin problem biblically. That's why we need to understand the exceeding sinfulness of sin and what sin did to Jesus Christ. And I can't think of a better day and a better week to focus on this as was called Passion Week or Holy Week as we move into what happened this week to Christ and what did Christ endure for you and for me. You see, the modern gospel says God loves you. God has a wonderful plan for your life. Therefore, follow these steps and you can be saved. You're in. All is good. That's it. Meanwhile, the biblical gospel says you are an enemy of God. You are dead in your sin. You are in, your st- you are in a present state of rebellion. You are not even able to see that you are needing his life, much less to cause yourself to come to life. Therefore, you and I are totally dependent on God to do something in our life that we could never do. Our understanding of who God is and who we are radically affects our understanding of who Christ is and what he's done for us and why we need him. So with that as our foundation, today we're going to look at Christ's passion, his suffering. What did he endure in his last hours? I've shared this before. It's been a a number of years ago. But I think it's important that every now and then we revisit these kind of things and understand that. So with that all being said, let's talk about Christ's passion today. First of all, the practice of crucifixion, which is the torture and execution of a person by fixation to a cross. Apparently the first known practice of crucifixion was by the Persians. We just talked about this last Wednesday night. Alexander the Great and his generals brought it back to the Mediterranean world where the Romans apparently learned the practice. The Romans not only learned the practice, the Romans had perfected it as a form of torture, as a form of capital punishment that was designed, honestly, to produce a slow death with maximum pain and suffering. It was customary for the condemned man to carry his own cross from the flogging post to the site of crucifixion outside the city walls. The entire cross, the crossbar and the upright post, weighed about 300 pounds or more with the crossbar itself that was placed on the person's shoulders weighing between uh, 75 and 125 pounds. Due to this, only the crossbar was carried. 
The crossbar was placed across the back of a person's neck and balanced on his shoulders. Usually the outstretched arms were tied in to the crossbar. I would illustrate, but I'm not going to this morning. The processional to the site of the crucifixion was led by a complete Roman military guard headed by a centurion. One of the soldiers carried a sign on which the condemned man's name and crime were displayed. Later, the sign would be attached to the top of the cross. Number one. Number two, let's look at the physical aspects of what Christ went through, which really began in the Garden of Gethsemane. What did he go through physically? As we consider the bloody sweat in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's interesting to note that the, that the physician of the group, Luke, Luke was a doctor, Luke is the only one to mention the bloody sweat. And Luke tells us in chapter 22, verse 44, and being found in agony, he prayed the longer, and his sweat became as drops of blood trickling down upon the ground. Now, modern scholars today try to explain that away, saying, well, that just doesn't happen. Although it's very rare, sweat may occur during or under great emotional stress. Medically, it's called hematidrosis. And what happens is tiny capillaries in the sweat glands can break, thus mixing blood with sweat. That process alone would have marked for, for pronounced weakness in Jesus. Now, why is Jesus in such agony and pain? It's not because he's afraid of the cross or the crucifixion. He's not sweating blood and trembling because of what the Roman soldiers are about to do. When Jesus prayed, my father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. The cup is not a reference to the wooden cross. It is a reference to divine judgment. The cup is the cup of God's wrath. All the sin of the world was in that cup. It's the cup of every sin that had ever been committed. I mean, think about it. All of God's holy wrath, all of God's hatred towards sin and sinners stored up since the beginning of time was about to be poured out on Jesus. And so Jesus is sweating blood at just the thought of it. Thirdly, after midnight, Jesus was arrested at Gethsemane by the temple officials. He was first taken to Ananias and then to Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest. It was here that the first physical trauma was inflicted on Jesus Christ. After the political Sanhedrin found Jesus guilty of blasphemy, the guards then blindfolded Jesus and they spat upon him and they struck him in the face with their fists prophesy who struck you in the early morning jesus battered dehydrated bruised and exhausted from a sleepless night is tried again before the religious sanhedrin council and was again found guilty of blasphemy a crime punishable to them by death when jesus was brought to pilate you recall that Pilate could find no basis for a legal charge, but the people persistently demanded crucifixion. Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate finally granted their demand and handed Jesus over to be scourged and crucified. Preparations for scourging are now carried out. The usual instrument was a short whip with several 
single or braided leather thongs of variable lengths in which small iron balls or sharp pieces of sheep bones were tied at intervals. It was called a flagrant or a flagellum, a scourging whip. For scourging, the man was stripped totally naked. Once again, humiliation. And his hands were tied to an upright post. The back, the buttocks, and legs were flogged either by two soldiers or by one who would then alternate positions, this side and then this side. It is doubtful whether the Romans made any attempt to follow the Jewish law prohibiting more than 40 lashes. At first, the heavy thongs of the whip would cut to the skin only. Then as the blows would continue, they cut deeper into his tissues, producing first an oozing blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin. Then finally, blood would spurt from the arteries in his underlying muscles. If you go back to the previous chapter, Isaiah 52, and read verse 14, you will see that his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. Another translation says his visage was so marred more than any man. He was beyond recognition because he was beaten and bloodied so bad. As the blows continue, the skin on the back is hanging in long ribbons and the entire area becomes an unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. When it's determined by the centurion in charge that the prisoner is near death, the scourging is finally stopped. The half-fainting Jesus is then untied and allowed to slump to the stone pavement. He is wet with his own blood. The Roman soldiers see a great joke of this provincial Jew claiming to be a king. They throw a robe across his shoulders and place a stick in his hands for a scepter. They still need a crown to make their mockery complete. And so a small bundle of flexible branches covered with long thorns, commonly used for firewood, are made into a crown, and this then was pressed into his scalp. Once that happens, once again, more bleeding. After mocking him and striking him across the face, the soldiers take the stick from his hand and strike him across the head, driving the thorns even deeper into his scalp. Finally, they grow tired of their sadistic sport, and the robe is then torn from his back. Its removal would have been like the removal of a bandage that was ripped off, once again causing excruciating pain, almost as if he were being whipped again. And the wounds, once again, would start to bleed. The procession begins. The crossbar was then tied across his shoulders, and the procession of the condemned Christ, the two thieves, and the execution detail of the Roman soldiers began their slow journey. In spite of all of his efforts to walk erect and upright, the weight of the heavy wooden cross, remember, 75 to 125 pounds, together with a shock produced by blood loss and a sleepless night, is too much for the body of Jesus Christ to endure. He stumbles, he falls. The rough wood of the beam, the cross beam, gouges into his lacerated skin and the muscles of his shoulders. He tries to rise, but human muscles have been pushed beyond their endurance. 
The centurion, anxious to get on with the crucifixion, selects Simon of Cyrene to carry his cross. Jesus follows, still bleeding and sweating the cold, clammy sweat of shock. The 650-yard journey from the fortress Antonia to Golgotha is finally completed. The prisoner is again stripped of his clothes except for a loincloth which is allowed the Jews. The crucifixion now begins. Jesus is offered wine mixed with myrrh, but he refuses to drink. Simon is ordered to place the crossbar on the ground, and Jesus is quickly thrown backward with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression in the front of his wrist. He drives a a heavy wrought iron kind of square nail into his wrist, deep into the wood. Quickly, he moves to the other side and repeats the action on both hands. Jesus has his hands now nailed to that crossbeam. The crossbar is then lifted up in place on top of the upright beam. And the sign reading, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, is nailed in place. The left foot is now pressed against backwards against the right foot. And with both feet extended in a downward position, toes down, a nail is driven to the arch of each, leaving his knees moderately flexed. Jesus is now crucified. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails in their wrists, excruciating fiery pain shoots up along the fingers, up into the arms to explode in the brain. The nails in the wrists are putting pressure on his median nerves. As he pushes himself upward to avoid this stretching torment, he places his full weight on the nail that is now through his feet. Again, there is searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of his feet. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Finally, he is able to push himself upward and bring in that life-giving oxygen. It was undoubtedly during these periods that Jesus uttered the seven short sentences which are recorded in the Bible. The first, looking down at the Roman soldiers, throwing dice for his seamless garment. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. The second, to the penitent thief, today, today you'll be with me in paradise. The third, looking down at the terrified, grief-stricken adolescent John, the beloved apostle, he said, Behold thy mother. And looking to Mary, his mother, Woman, behold thy son. The fourth cry from the beginning of the 22nd Psalm, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He he gasped for his fifth cry, I thirst. Remembering again that prophetic 22nd Psalm, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. See, Jesus can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues. This realization alone brings out his sixth words, probably little more than a tortured whisper. It is finished. His mission of atonement has been completed. Jesus can now allow his body to die. With one last surge of strength, 
He once again presses his torn feet against that nail, tries to straighten out his legs to get in a little more oxygen in his lungs. He takes a deeper breath and utters his seventh and last cry. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And he dies. The common method of ending a crucifixion was by the breaking of the bones of the legs. This would prevent the victim from pushing himself upward to get, that, to get the air that he needs in his lungs. And then what would happen is rapid suffocation would take place. Well, the legs of the two thieves were broken. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that this was not necessary as well as to fulfill Scripture. But apparently to make double sure of death, the soldier drove his spear through the fifth inner space between the ribs upward into his heart. And John 19, verse 34 records, And immediately there came out blood and water. There was an escape of watery fluid from the sac surrounding the heart and the blood from the interior of the heart. Therefore, we have rather conclusive evidence that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, died not the usual crucifixion death by suffocation, but of heart failure due to shock and constriction of the heart by fluid in the pericardium. That is Christ's suffering. That is his passion. See, what I just described to you is what Jesus Christ actually went through during his last hours, his passion. You can read about it this week in the events that transpire during Passion Week or Holy Week. And I know it's not a pretty sight, and as you hear that, you can say, well, that's kind of depressing, Pastor. But understand today that death by crucifixion was violent. You say, well, why all the violence? Why, why did it have to be like that? Because of the violent nature of our sin. You say, well, that's extreme. Well, God's love is extreme. God's grace is extreme. God's mercy is extreme. You know why? Because my sin against a holy God is extreme. See, here's what I want us to understand today. God's justice and wrath are proportionate to the depth of our sin. And the depth of our sin is proportionate to the depth of God's perfection. Add it all up and we see that yes, we are utterly hopeless cases without the intervention of God himself. See, what happened at the cross was not primarily about nails being thrust into Jesus' hands and his feet, but what happened at the cross was about the wrath of God due your sin and my sin being thrust upon his soul. For in that holy moment, all the, all the righteous wrath and justice of God do us came down like a torrent on Jesus Christ. Church, that is the gospel. That the just and loving creator of the universe has looked upon hopelessly sinful evil people and sent his son, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin in the resurrection next week so that all who trust in him will be reconciled to God. When you put it like that, it's really this way. It's not that we accept him, but that rather he is now able to accept us. 
Jesus died so that we could be rescued from the just and mighty wrath of God. Jesus satisfied the judgment of God for my sin and for your sin. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. See, yes, Jesus suffered and he died and took our place for our sins. But the good news is he was resurrected from death to justify us before a holy and a righteous God. I don't know about you, but I am so glad today that God's mercy triumphs over God's judgment. Amen? We all deserve the judgment of God, the wrath of God. But Jesus willingly suffered the judgment and the death and the wrath that we deserve. The hymn writer said it so well, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, and he washed it white as snow. Although he is just, although he is righteous, I am glad that he came to pardon. I mean, God made him who had no sin, the Bible says, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. See, the purpose for which Jesus Christ came into the world was to bring salvation, to redeem, to purchase, to buy back for himself a people who will love him, a people who will serve him. And and really, Christ's purpose in coming was, was to save us, not to condemn us. You've heard me say time and time again, you know, the cross is a plus sign, not a minus sign. God is for you, not against you. See, here's the deal, and I'm wrapping this up. People won't be in hell because God did not want them, but rather because they did not want God. And man, I can see that in Revelation over and over again as we get into the judgments and the vials and the trumpets and so If there was ever a Bible verse to accurately describe what I just shared this morning, it's this, 1 John 4.10. In this act, in this act, we see what real love is. It is not our love for God, but His love for us when He sent His Son to satisfy God's anger against our sins. you got to catch that all. Because that... That is Christ's his passion. And my question for you this morning as we wrap this up is that have you truly trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation? I mean, do you today see the sinfulness of your heart, the depth of your depravity, the desperation of your need for his grace? See, Jesus doesn't want to be accepted or invited into your heart, but rather he wants total surrender of every part of your life to himself. Have you given him everything? Have you given him everything? See, once you realize that he has done what he's done for you, I think there's only one response, and that is gratefulness and thankfulness and say, God, thank you so much. I surrender to you, to your will. You see, what it comes down to is this. You realize that you are saved not just to be forgiven, not just to have your sins, you know, and your slate cleaned or whatever, but rather you are saved to know God and to yearn for him. And so ultimately, his passion 
for you produces a passion in you for him. That's the good news. I mean, Jesus said, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's why, friends, I can't settle for anything else than a God-centered, Christ-exalting, self-denying gospel. Jesus is infinitely worth our immediate and total surrender. And so once again, have you truly repented of your sin? Have you surrendered your life to Christ? Are the things you're living for truly worth him dying for? Are you prepared for eternity? If you don't know him, it's important that you, A, acknowledge or admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. You see, the Bible says we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, no, not one. And the only thing that will keep you and I out of heaven is our sin, and the only sin that God doesn't forgive is the sin that we don't repent of. So you have to admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Second thing is, be, believe, and trust in Christ alone for your salvation. It's true, God does love you too much to leave you the way you are, all right? That's why Jesus Christ came. That's why he took our place on the cross and did for us what we could never do for ourselves. The final thing is this. You need to confess your sin, which means you repent, and you ask Christ to forgive you of your sin, and then you surrender your life totally to him. You see, biblically, there's no believing without following. There's no salvation without surrender. There's no forgiveness without repentance. And there's no life without death. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who conceals his sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Jesus Christ didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. And all of us were dead in our sins and our trespasses. But Jesus has paid the price. Therefore, I owe him my life. Amen? Let's all stand to our feet. We'll pray together. If you have come this morning and do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to give you opportunity today to get things right with God, to make sure that if you were to die today, you would go to heaven and not to hell. That all being said, let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that as we conclude this service, that you would come and touch our hearts. I pray for those who are standing here today, God, that, that have never asked you to come into their lives, God, and they've, they've never really committed their lives to you. They've never repented of their sin. And so, God, may today be that day of salvation for them. I pray that you'd help them to recognize today that you want them to know you. You want them to have a, a living love relationship with you. God, you want them to know of your forgiveness and that if they died this moment, that they too could go to heaven and not to hell. With, with everyone standing here this morning, I don't care if you close your eyes or not, but if you need Jesus Christ to forgive your, you of your sin, and you need the gift of eternal life right where you're standing right now, I'm going to ask you to put your hand up high and say, Pastor Brian, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I need Christ in my life. And today I am making that commitment to him. I want to be all in for him. Keep your hand raised. Anyone else? God's speaking to your heart.
Today, I am making a commitment to Christ. I want to be all in for Him. One last thing. If you raise your hands this morning, I'm going to ask you to step out from where you're standing, and I want you to come down the front. I'm not, trying, I'm not trying to embarrass anybody, but I do know that when Jesus called people to follow him, he called them publicly. When he died in your place on the cross, it was publicly for all to see. And so if you raised your hand to get right with God, I'm going to ask you to step out from where you're standing and come on down. I want to pray for you and lead you in a prayer. Today is the day of salvation. We're not guaranteed of tomorrow. I like to say tomorrow is only a day on a fool's calendar. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. None of us are. Anybody else? God's grace and mercy is still available. Thank you for being honest enough to say, hey, I need forgiveness in my life. I need to repent of my sin. There's more. Be honest before God. This is God's mercy. What I shared this morning is God's mercy trying to get a hold of your heart. God's mercy. God's mercy. Anyone else? God's speaking to your heart. You need to get right today. You want to know him in a life-changing way. The Bible says if we're ashamed of him, he'll be ashamed of us. If we don't confess him before others, he won't confess us before his Father in heaven. Holding steady for a moment. God's arms of mercy are wide open. God bless you. For those that came forward this morning, look at me. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. Prayer doesn't save you, but what's in your heart does. And, and, and if we believe, we shall be saved. Amen? I won't ask you to repeat this after me, but pray it from your heart like you mean it, okay? Because this is life and death. And so say with me, dear God in heaven, say it out loud, dear God in heaven, I confess today that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. Forgive me and cleanse me from all my sins. I confess with my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I believe in my heart that you raised him from the dead. So from this day forward, with your help, I will live as you want me to live. Be my Lord, be my Savior, be my very best friend. In your name I pray. Amen, 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 amen. Hallelujah. The Bible says if one person comes to salvation, there's a party in heaven. Amen. And so hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. Next steps. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. If you don't have one, I'll get you one. Read the Bible. Pray. How do you pray? You pray like I'm talking to you. You don't have to use vows and therefores and shouts and whatever. Just talk to God like you're talking to your best friend. Amen? Because you are. And, and also, get in, if you're not part, get into a good Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church that's going to tell you the truth regardless. And other than that, 
you get some good Christian friends that'll help you along the journey, and we're all in this together. Amen? We're, we're all in this together. And so, Lord, I, I thank you, God, today. I thank you for your passion, Jesus. I thank you for everything you've done. And I just say to you and you alone, be all glory, honor, and praise once again. Thank you for the wonderful gift of salvation. Lord, thank you, God, because we have been, we have been forgiven much. Therefore, we will love much. In your name, amen and amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. This Wednesday, I'll be teaching from Revelation 13 and 17, continuing on there next Sunday. I think I'll preach on the resurrection. Amen. God bless you all. Have a great week in the Lord. If you need a Bible, I'll get you a Bible. If you don't have one, have a great week in the Lord. Amen.